0: What's up, y'all? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. We are on episode number 17, and today I talk with author Josh McNall. Josh is the author of a new book coming out titled Perhaps, and this book is all about reclaiming the space between doubt and dogmatism. And essentially what Josh presents is this idea of our faith being in a state of perhaps living somewhere in the middle. And so I'm super excited for you to hear this conversation as Josh kind of walks us through some of the ideas that he presents in the book. And I found this interview to be really helpful for me as I'm working through different doubts and thoughts that I have as I walk and follow Jesus. If you could do me a huge favor by sharing the podcast and rating it. Uh, that would be super helpful as it will help others find uh, Rethinking Christianity and maybe it can be an aid to those that find it. And if you also could follow us on Instagram, if you'd love to keep up with us on there, we post different content and quotes and just different thoughts on there. At Rethinking Christianity Podcast, we just type that in on Instagram. You should be able to find us. And with all that being said, thanks again. Here is the interview with Josh McNall. Josh, thank you for, for coming on Rethinking Christianity. Josh is a professor of pastoral theology at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Uh, he's the host of the podcast Outpost Theology and the author of several books. Uh, he has a new release coming out September 21st titled Perhaps Reclaiming the Space Between Doubt and Dogmatism. And so I'm excited to have Josh on today as we kind of discuss his book. Uh, and I think this book is something that can be helpful for a lot of people, Um as they're dealing with the tension between certainty and dogmatism and, and doubt. And so, Josh, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure. So before we kind of dive into some of the stuff that uh, you talk about in the book, I'd love to just hear a little bit about you and how you ended up uh, in the studies of theology and as a professor, because um, that's a route that is kind of rare for a lot of people. And it's um, I just would love to hear about it.
1: Sure. Well, I grew up, um, in Kansas. Uh, so there are real people living in Kansas in the middle of the country. Uh, I was one of them, uh, kind of out in the country. My dad was a pastor, kind of a small country church there. And so I grew up in the church and, um, but you know, I wrestled with probably just like everybody does. What's my path in life? What's my calling? And, um, I did feel called to some form of ministry, but I didn't really feel called to be a pastor full time, you know? And so I was drawn to thinking and kind of analyzing and studying, um, big, big reader, I guess I'm a nerd if you want to put it that way. Yeah. And so I always kind of felt like I was going to be a professor and, uh, studied pastoral ministry in undergrad, but. Felt more drawn to academia, and then so I went on to do a degree in theology um, in the Boston area for my master's, and then a PhD over in England at the University of Manchester for my um, my doctorate. But you know, I've, I've, so I've been wrestling with questions of faith and God and, and meaning, um, kind of all along the way. But my heart is really for folks who, in some ways, maybe are on the edge of the church, uh, and they increasingly have questions about God, about um, how the Bible speaks to their life and and so this book is really in some ways for those folks it's it's lightly academic. I mean there are footnotes but it's not like yeah. it's, it's not designed to be super super dense reading. it's for folks who feel kind of caught between those extremes of a kind of maybe crippling, secular doubt or agnosticism. And then on the other side, increasingly sort of narrow or angry religious dogmatism or fundamentalism. And so that's really who it's for. That's awesome. Yeah. I definitely feel like the,
0: you know, this book is, is necessary and something that can be useful on both sides of the spectrum. Um, Cause I think on, you know, a lot of times it's easy, I think to get, at least from my experience caught up on just focusing on the, the specifics of doubt Um, whereas dogmatism can also be as kind of damaging, uh, or maybe not as, um, healthy of a way to practice faith. And so I think that, um, I haven't actually ever, I haven't read a book where it's been like dealing with both of them. It's been mostly dealing with doubt. Uh, and so I really appreciate that in this. So, um, this book is titled perhaps, and I really like the language that you use there to kind of describe this tension. Uh, and I read a quote that you mentioned by N.T. Wright. Uh, and it says, to believe in prod- providence often means saying perhaps. Uh, and is that kind of where some of the ideas from the book kind of derive from? Uh, and what kind of led you to just writing this book? I know you mentioned your heart for those people, um, but what were kind of the
1: thoughts that kind of led into writing it? Yeah, that quote was one of the early things that I read that first made me sort of, first kind of birth this idea or this project in my mind. And that word, I think, is is interesting because it's, it's in some ways it's kind of a cautious or a humble word. Cause it, you're not saying, look, I have all the answers. I'm hundred percent certain you're kind of saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is how it works. And so there's a little bit of intellectual humility in it, but at the same time, it's in some ways a bold word, if we're talking about theology, cause we're actually, we're not just sitting there content with our questions or our lack of understanding we're actually reaching out for something and trying to wrap ideas and words around things that we can't quite grasp and so it's it's interesting both for its kind of humility but also there's a sense of creative boldness or imagination that goes along with saying that word and so that's that quote from Wright. sometimes believing in providence or your reader your listeners might you know sometimes clinging to faith in God means learning how to say perhaps, especially if you feel like you've kind of fallen off the map of faith, um, then that little word can be sort of like a stepping stone, um, that, that you can use, uh, to sort of hold on to, to something as you're searching for, for answers. That's
0: great. Yeah. I think that that's, Um, Yeah, I I like that word. And and what you mentioned about the kind of the humility of it is very necessary Um, because what I have found and I've had to work on this in my own kind of walk of faith is dealing with this idea that there are parts of faith that are just like mystery. There is a mystery Mm -hmm. to to faith. Uh, And I found that that is a good thing rather than leaning more or less on to one side of the spectrum than another. And I, I read one of your, your blog posts and I saw uh, the graphic of like it had dogmatism on one side and then it had doubt on the other and it had this the perhaps in the middle. And I thought that visual was really, really helpful for for myself. Um, do you have kind of a way in which, you know, we have these two ends of the spectrum that I think a lot of people deal with um, and some people I think, you know, different personalities just naturally lean towards one or the other. Um, do you have kind of, you know, working definitions as to how you would personally, I guess, define uh, dogmatism and how you would define doubt? Because I think that could be um, yeah. help helpful and maybe
1: clarifying in that. Yeah, I think defining what I mean by those is like, is super important. And sometimes we don't do that very well. So th- we'll start with dogmatism, kind of that one extreme. And I define dogmatism, it's really not like, Christians sometimes talk about the central dogmas of the faith and that might be like, you know, Jesus is the son of God or the Trinity or something. So I'm not really talking about it in, in those terms. Dogmatism for me is a matter of tone, like how we speak and then yeah. emphasis. And so in terms of tone, what I mean by dogmatism is when we take on this really sort of shrill, aggressive, kind of angry arrogant tone and we see that all the time in the culture wars left versus right you know things like that so by dogmatism i'm talking about the tone or the posture that we take towards other people especially when they might disagree with us and then secondly it's a matter of emphasis and so what i mean by that is dogmatism often adopts a posture of false certainty claiming to have certainty on issues that maybe we ought to hold a little bit more loosely and with a little bit more humility. And uh so it's it's false certitude and it's this tone of kind of shrillness or or, or anger that we often adopt in a culture that's sort of divided and and polarized.
0: Yeah. And I think that the what you mentioned there is definitely, you know, as from my personal, from personal experience with others and with myself, um, I found that the last thing that is helpful to a person that is on the fringe, that's kind of working through those things is that like divisive, that, that certitude. A, there's oftentimes, and, and I have this, I guess it's a, maybe a pride thing, but there's part of me sometimes it's like, man, I don't even, I don't want to believe in what you believe, even if you are right, because of how mm-hmm. confident you are about it and how much you swear you're right. And so mm-hmm. that's something that I have, I've definitely struggled with in that kind
1: of area. Yeah. Well, and sometimes I think we try to convince ourselves, you know, we're, there's an old preacher story. I don't know if it's true or not of the preacher who, who wrote in the margin of his sermon notes, point is weak, comma, yell louder. (laughs) And so it's like, he knows that his points, not that great. It's not airtight. And so the attempt is to just shout louder to make up for that lack of sort of robust thought. And I think sometimes we do that because we're we're insecure and we know that maybe this thing that we're claiming to believe or that we're saying doesn't hold water. And so we use volume, you know, typing in all caps to try to make up for um, a lack of certainty in our own life. And so that's the that's the dogmatism piece, the yeah. kind of tone of shrillness and a posture of false certainty. But like you said, it's also important to define what I mean by this opposite extreme of a kind of crippling doubt. And I don't think doubt is always negative. I think in some cases we're ambushed by uncertainty. You know, I don't know how you could not struggle with doubt over the goodness of God or the holiness of God after a personal tragedy, you know, after something like the Holocaust on a grand scale or, you know, the drowning of a, a toddler in a backyard pool. And how could you not wrestle with doubt? And doubt can actually, in some cases, be helpful in our walk with God, because I think God uses those wilderness experiences to uh, refine us and to bring us maybe from a place of naivety, where we just accept whatever we heard, you know, in Sunday school or from our parents, to a place of maturity. And so I'm not saying that all doubt is bad. And I'm certainly not saying that doubt is always avoidable, you know, yeah. but there is this thing in the scriptures where we frequently see biblical writers speaking about how God works against our doubts and Jesus calling people not to doubt, but rather to exercise faith or belief or, uh, and, one of the things I try to do in the book is say, well, okay, well, what does the Bible mean by doubt? Yeah. You know, Cause if, if doubt's not always a bad thing and if it's not always avoidable, why do the scriptures sort of speak against it? Or why does Jesus sort of work against it to bring people to a place of trust uh, rather than a place of certainty or skepticism. And so, I spent some time kind of unpacking what the Bible means by doubt, because I think there's been some misconceptions on on the one hand in the church, you have this sense where faith is construed as certainty. Hmm. And so we're constantly seeking certainty because we think if that's what faith is, and if we want to get our prayers answered or if we want to have a blessed life, then we have to remove all doubts from our minds or, you know, God's not going to heal us or there's this kind of like, prosperity gospel type view of faith that means that it's it's got to be a complete certitude or like God's not going to work in your life. And I think that's really wrong. Um, I don't think that's what the Bible means by doubt. Uh, so one of the things I deal with in getting into the, the scriptures is that in many cases, the scriptures speak of doubt not as a presence of questions or as a lack of certainty, but rather as divided allegiances within our hearts. They speak of doubt as like the divided soul, the person that's that's divided against themselves. And I think that's helpful because what it means is that we can be wrestling with questions and uncertainty and not be in the place of like sin or disobedience. Uh what scriptures what the scriptures mean oftentimes in terms of faith is is an issue of allegiance and of trust and not an issue of certainty or, or lack of questions. So that's just a little bit on the, the need to kind of define those two extremes so we don't get ourselves in, in a bad position.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and I think that for people within that have grown up in church, because what I've seen a lot of is people that grow up in church and they, they kind of get hit with these things later on, maybe in their 20s. Um, and when or maybe when they leave the the setting that they've been growing up in. And it's almost like a, a shock factor. I feel like a lot yeah. of people don't have like a, they don't know how to wrestle with it or respond to it. And so it's I see it like it's usually a response by either going towards dogmatism where I've seen that where I have friends that like just go straight to dogmatism or they go to abandonment. Um, Because I think that at least in in some of my personal experiences, maybe the church or or my personal experience in the church is not teaching people, well, what is what does it actually look like to work through doubt? Um, And I think what you just mentioned about kind of clarifying those definitions is really helpful for people. And I think that I think that is something that I think that, you know, as we move forward, the church moves forward, I think can be really helpful for people that are wrestling with those things and, and dealing with those questions. Um, and one of the things that is uh, kind of interesting, you talk about um, an idea of speculation, um, and so speculation, and the way in which I've heard you refer to it, is in the regards of theology, like in academics, that speculation. Mm-hmm. If you if you speculate, it's not necessarily a good thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but speculation, why do you think that this idea of speculation is just, a, you know, when you naturally hear it, it's kind of this this negative thing when that may not necessarily be the case when someone is dealing with their faith.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's So there's kind of two parts of the book or two focuses in the book. And one is the thing we talked about already, which is like this sense in this culture that we live in, that's so divided between doubt and dogmatism and how people feel pulled toward one of those two extremes. And another aspect of the book, which you just mentioned is that I'm dealing with, okay, well, what would be the the purpose of imagination or speculation if we're going to try to avoid some of those extremes. And like you said, in theology, to call somebody's theology speculative is like never a compliment. It's always a shame word. And I list off a whole bunch of different theologians from Karl Barth to Friedrich Schleiermacher to more recent theologians like Kevin Van Hooser and Scott Swain. And they all define speculation as a really, 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 really bad thing. But then they all define it in in really different ways. So it has kind of a different definition for each person. The only thing they agree on is it's 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 really bad. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things I'm trying to do is say, well, okay, what if there's actually a a beneficial purpose to speculating in certain cases um, to say, what if or perhaps, when we don't really have all the answers about a particular theological question or a particular question about apologetics or about our faith, could there actually be a benefit to um, the use of the imagination to help us? Um, kind of keep functioning and keep thinking and keep living in an obedient fashion in spite of our lack of certainty. Yeah. And so I do think that there is a place for speculation in theology that doesn't necessarily result in you just coming up with all of these weird half-baked theories <laughs> and, you know, asserting them as as truth. And so that's that's the piece on speculation that I'm i'm really kind of pushing back against the vast majority of theologians who who are going to use that word in a in a negative way
0: yeah i found that yeah i found that really interesting because that is you kind of like when you hear that word in conversation it is naturally just this negative word he's speculatively kind of that that negative tone when it's when it's used it's never really even used in a positive tone uh and yeah. so i found that really uh interesting so have you found like any of this stuff like kind of your own personal experience kind of
1: stuff that you've had to work through and and walk through yeah yeah i have i mean and, and so at the end of the book there's three chapters at the end that are kind of like case studies where i'm just looking at a particular question that christians wrestle with both today and in prior centuries and so those three case studies basically the first one begins in kind of primal history, even before humans even come on the scene. And it's a question that Charles Darwin had in his own walk, in his own faith. You know, here's a guy who who admits in his letters that when he was aboard the Beagle, you know, his famous voyage that he thought the Bible was this unanswerable authority. And he actually got made fun of by the other people on the boat for being this like Bible thumper, you know, and most, most of us don't think of like Charles Darwin as like a Bible thumper, no. but he but he talks about that. And he says one of the things that really like tipped him over the edge into agnosticism, he wasn't a full-fledged atheist, but he kind of let go of like a robust Christian faith was he said he had this question about, well, why would a loving Power, all powerful, all-powerful and all-loving Creator God, design a world in such a way that it was the sufferings and the deaths of millions and millions of creatures over countless millennia before humans even came on the scene that actually propelled, you know, this world forward. And wh- why would a loving God design it that way? And He, he basically answered, "Well, He wouldn't." You know, so either yeah. God is not good, or he's not sovereign, or maybe he's not there at all, no. but, you know, that question for him was a big, big kind of deal breaker for his Christian faith, and so I'm looking at, in that chapter, the question of animal suffering before humans even come onto the scene, and uh, I don't come to some firm, again, like dogmatic conclusion, <laughs> Yeah, but I'm just laying out some, Well, well, what if, yeah. maybe, or perhaps this could be why this world functions in the way that it does. And one of the things I'm trying to do is I'm seeking what are called non-contrastive solutions in which we don't just say either or in certain cases where we don't really know for sure, but we try to find a creative, maybe third option or a kind of way to bring together different different options. So that's one that I've wrestled with as I've studied science, as I've studied the scriptures, as I've studied the world. And um, I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but when you talk about why people are deconstructing their faith and why they're having doubts, one of the number one things they'll mention, in addition to like partisan politics or sexual ethics, one of the big ones that they'll mention, maybe a third one is questions from science. You know, how does science fit with the claims of Christianity? So that's just one of those last three chapters. But it exa- it examines a really a question that I've wrestled with and, and lots of other Christians, including Darwin, um, wrestled with.
0: Yeah. And, and I appreciate that kind of like that thinking of like non like just divisive. Uh, thinking and, and it's just one of the, it's one of those things that i've like i've had to try and reconcile with because that's a question that i i still deal with and i still wrestle with uh and i think it's one that listeners when they hear this that they will also kind of relate to because it's it's clearly something that people struggle with if you're able to do case studies on it um mm-hmm. and so i'd love to talk about some so you quote dumbledore um <laughs> which is a which is a great quote it's a really good quote um, and I guess technically be J.K. Rowling, but yeah. um, so this quote, I'd love—I just want to talk about like the actual practice of working through doubt. So this quote mm-hmm. says, "Curiosity is not a sin, but we should exercise curiosity with caution." Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you think one ought to be cautious in their doubt and living uh, in perhaps? So as they're living in this kind of perhaps mindset, why should they yeah. be be cautious? And then I have a follow-up question. Sure. Uh, as Cause I've, I've talked about this with people and they have like a, an opposite viewpoint on this. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. So is the opposite, just to kind of clarify the question is the opposite viewpoint that curiosity is always bad. Like curiosity killed. the ah, cat. I
0: didn't even think about that. So, yeah, so I guess that could be one side of it, but I've also, I've had people when I've talked about deconstruction and doubt, they've viewed it from the perspective of, um, deconstruction should be this, this freeing thing where they get to do this and that there should be no, um, I think you use the language guardrails yeah. uh, and there should be no guardrails around it so that yeah. a person can be truly honest with the the fate that they come to the conclusion of. Uh, yeah. And so, but like you just mentioned, yeah, on the flip side of that, I, I could see on the opposite side that um, the more dogmatic side, uh, that yeah. caution or sin
1: caution is, or a curiosity can be Sinful. So, yeah. Well, you can kind of see my personality coming out because, like, in each one of these issues that we've (laughs) talked about, I'm always laying out, well, here's one extreme way over here. Yeah. And here's another extreme way over here. And I'm kind of trying to land a little bit in the middle, which of course we know, you know, the middle is not always right. You know, if yeah. if somebody says that two plus two equals four and somebody else says two plus two equals six, I mean the right answer would not be to just split the difference and say it's five, you know. Yeah. So so that's a danger in my own personality that I'm always kind of looking for this middle ground. Yeah. Um, yeah that's what I do think that, In some cases, it's helpful to to, let's just say curiosity or speculation. Those that idea within our Christian walk or in theology. Um, Speculation can run amok in all sorts of different ways, where we're just interested in spinning off all sorts of what if scenarios, and it can lead to just absurdity. It can lead to us losing the forest for the trees and like ignoring like the main clear things of the christian faith like love your neighbor as yourself you know this sort of in getting off on these weird speculative bunny trails and so that's an example of where curiosity can run amok and that's why we have we have sayings like you know curiosity killed the cat or Mm -hmm. whatever that um it can turn into just this what one author calls what ifery where you just constantly uh what if what if but you don't come to any Conclusions, you don't get down to the important work of obedience or loving your neighbor. So that's that's a danger in curiosity. And sometimes I would say this, um, sometimes deconstruction comes from a really honest place of seeing inconsistencies in the church and hypocrisy and abuse, um, and it needs to happen. It can be a necessary and obedient thing to deconstruct false or abusive un-Jesus like structures right sometimes though we deconstruct with motives and I would say since all I think all of us are fallen in our own ways our motives are often mixed Um, and so sometimes we're deconstructing because we just want to do what we want to do and we know that if we don't deconstruct the parts of the bible that we don't like we're going to feel guilty about doing whatever we want to do yeah. yeah. And so de- we have like a dog in this fight sometimes. And if I don't want to be faithful to my wife, if I don't want to give sacrificially to the poor, if I don't want to change my attitudes towards people that are prejudiced or biased, we know, like sometimes deconstruction is coming from a place of selfishness or um, it's, it's where I just, to be honest, I just kind of want to be God. Yeah. And And so if I can kick him off the throne, or if I can just remove all the parts from the scriptures that don't fit my cultural biases, then it's just a whole lot easier for me. So that's another thing I would say about maybe the danger of speculation or curiosity, or even deconstruction is we don't always do it with the purest, at least speaking for myself, you know, I don't always do it with the purest of motives. And so, um, that's an important sort of check on maybe those voices who would only use it in a positive way I think they're reacting like I said to a really narrow form of dogmatism but the opposite extreme you know deconstruction as a destination yeah. I think is it's no way to to live your life and one of the authors I quote in the book is like he's saying that like trying to get a community together centered around say atheism is like starting a league of people who don't play golf yeah like you know like you can't like start a league just based on what you don't do you, you know it, it lacks a sort of center uh and so those are just some random thoughts on yeah i think curiosity deconstruction speculation there can be positive aspects to them but i wouldn't just give myself over to this wholesale endorsement of them.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a kind of a hot buzzword, especially right now. I feel like, um, and I have a, I've had seasons of both where I've, you know deconstructed probably because i want to kind of want to do it i want to do it at times and then mm-hmm. uh, other times where i think that i'm sure other some listeners can relate to this is that trying to rationalize you know ideas and thoughts and beliefs about the scriptures and um theology because you know like what we mentioned a minute ago those those hard questions are not easy to deal with or, or grapple with um as being just humans who who cannot <laughs> at times that there is this like perhaps this kind of mystery that's going on uh, that makes it really difficult. Um, And so you're a professor, and so you deal with, um, I'm assuming younger people, uh, and I'm sure you have a mix. Um, So how much have you seen, I guess, if you've had conversations with students, um, I guess with millennials and Gen Z, I guess, I don't know if Gen Z's, they'll probably start getting into college in the next couple years. Um, How much have you seen where like their doubt and maybe deconstruction is driven by um, maybe like uh or that dogmatic dogmatism uh, of certain kind of evangelicals. And I think to be fair, um, when I say that, um, I think that there is also on the far left side of the spectrum, there is the same dogmatism uh, and I'm seeing that more and more. Um, and so I don't want to be unfair to just more conservative when I yeah. said, when I asked that question.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you said that because there is a sense in which you, um even a certain form of doubt can become its own dogmatism yes right it's a very narrow it's a kind of fundamentalism yes in its own way very narrow very uh, insular very uh, kind of angry and arrogant so you're right there's like a dog dogmatism on the other side of the spectrum that is is an issue in certain places more than others but so when I talk to young people you know I live in Oklahoma. Uh, it's one of the most conservative, reddest Bible belt States in the country. Um, and so culture matters wherever you're at. Like I was just preaching in Portland recently. That's a different culture, right? You know, oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, just a little bit. And, uh, I, you know, I did my doctorate over in Manchester, England, different culture. Right. Yeah. But where I'm at in Oklahoma, a lot of the issues that my students and former students, are, are talking about when it comes to doubt and deconstruction, it has a kind of common sort of framework or one of my persons I was talking to recently said is it's almost like there's a shared Google doc of doubt and deconstruction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty accurate. Yeah. yeah. Like shout out to AJ Swoboda cause I'm stealing that from him. He, he mentioned that the other day, but and the shared Google doc of doubt deconstruction basically goes like this. At least in my part of the country, it often starts with church hurt, Yes. an experience of pain, abuse in the church, uh, oftentimes a kind of dogmatism, you know, abusive leadership structures, fundamentalist sort of um, cultures. And so, in my part of the country, it often starts with church hurt. And kind of seeing behind the curtain the hypocrisy and the imperfections of the church. And sometimes we kind of dismiss that as a valid reason because we're like, we say things, I've heard people say things like this. You don't get mad when you go to the gym if you see fat people there. Like you ought to be happy that they're there. They're trying to get in shape. And so the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And you should expect there to be imperfect people there, right? And that's totally true. I totally believe that, you know, uh, Christians are people and we're fallen and we, we hurt each other. And, you know, but one of the things that one of my former students said to me recently, is like, I didn't expect the church to be perfect. (laughs) He's like, but I did expect it to be like not worse than the culture in certain areas and then increasingly, especially at the last year and a half with all of the fighting and the bickering over everything yeah. from mass to vaccines, to conspiracy theories, to elections, to he's like, it was like my church was worse than like my local Starbucks in those regards. And so I don't, I don't know that that's always true. It might be unfair to say that, but for me, the thing that I'm hearing on the shared Google doc first off is church hurt, you know, hurt within the church that has kind of scarred people. And in many cases, that leads to questions that then are more philosophical or theological in nature about like the problem of evil. You know, if God is good and powerful, why doesn't he do something, you know? Um, And so then the other thing I would mention is that church hurt piece increasingly with my students is connected with uh, the extent to which Evangelicalism, especially, has become really, really um, captured by a kind of political partisanship, um, and it's not that these students are saying that that we should run completely in the opposite direction to whatever the you know the other extreme. If you're on the right, then run all the way to the left, or if you're on the left, but they're just saying, well, we ought to be able to recognize the weaknesses within our own kind of political camp and not only talk about kind of the other side yeah and and so those are some common themes if we're going to work off of that kind of shared google doc the church hurt which leads then to other questions that are sometimes more philosophical or theological um political partisanship within the church and then a big one that uh Lots of people notice is just questions over sexual ethics and what the Bible teaches over whether it's LGBTQ issues or any other number of issues. Those are kind of the, some of those those common those common themes that are along the pathway of of doubt and deconstruction.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's
1: that's a really good example. What was his name? AJ. Is so what you said? Yes, yeah, AJ yeah. Swoboda. And uh, I, always, I feel bad about promoting my, I, you know how it is. When you have a book coming out, you got to promote your book. And it feels like something feels kind of gross about constantly yeah. uh, posting about your own book. So I give a shout out to AJ. He wrote a book called After Doubt, okay. how to, how to oh. question your faith without losing it. And it's actually a really good book so that I'm not just here promoting mine. I'll give a shout out to him.
0: Yeah, there we go. No, that's a really good uh, illustration for, uh, honestly, that is, that's exactly the the conversations I've had that lines up. It is kind of like a trickle down on this. It it usually does start a lot with some kind of church hurt or um, then leading into those philosophical questions because they find themselves uh, at a place where they feel more comfortable, I guess, questioning because they don't feel like they're betraying. Uh, And because it's like, well, I've been betrayed. So I'm going to ask these questions. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting dynamic there. And I think uh, the stuff you mentioned about division in our country and just the last year of craziness, I think is really interesting because I find this idea, um, this perhaps idea, I feel like this is also and um, I was going to see if you agree with this. This is also applicable to just how we go about hard conversation and how we go about um, living life one with one another, this, uh, this mm-hmm. kind of this love your neighbor, the, the what Jesus calls people to of loving your neighbor. I mm-hmm. feel like should almost always be this posture of, at least in some cases, this posture of perhaps of not like I'm so certain uh, that it ruins my relationships with people.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think in some cases, I think, you know, I'm not, one of the things I'm trying to be careful with in the book because that that word, perhaps since it's the title, every time I say it now, I notice it and it's almost like annoys me, you know? Yeah. Uh, My students look at me like, is this a subtle plug for your book? Or (laughs) (laughs) Um, there are certain things, certain ways in which it's not a helpful word in certain ways in which we shouldn't just eternally sit on the fence and leave all options open, you know? Um, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's this kind of rooted trust in the truth of certain things, like let's say the resurrection or the goodness of God that allows us to continue to love our neighbor in ways and in spaces where it doesn't make any earthly sense. Yeah. You know? Um, And so that's a case in which something that might seem irrational or even like, lack certitude, like belief in the resurrection or the the goodness, the holiness of God, I think can actually enable us to love in ways that don't make sense. If we're just loosely holding all of our beliefs without any commitment or cost.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and for myself personally, my, I, I am at a place where I, I just am not on the middle ground by any means on everything. Um, Mm -hmm. there are some things where I probably am a little, I guess, dogmatic about, uh, and there are some things where I, I have some doubt and I think that's all people. And I definitely think that, um, what well, you just mentioned, that's very, very important that, that what we're not saying is that you just have to be in the middle ground the whole, all the time. Um, yeah. But I think that, you know, at least what, I, what I've perceived is that it, this can be a very helpful way forward or an attitude towards some of these conversations and some of these things. Um, and I think it's one that can be helpful for the church as a whole um, as we've kind of already talked about, but I wanted to ask have this question and one more. Um, do you feel like that there is um, any like specific direction that maybe the church can kind of move forward in um, out of the kind of the stuff that we've been talking about, the tension that's going on right now, not just with um, doubt and dogmatism, but just the the attitudes that we kind of see that come from one side or the other, uh, that they're so kind of at each other's throats at times?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that pastors in the church at large have to do is to make themselves and their community a place where it is okay to wrestle with questions in your faith. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do that. One of them is to just be honest as a pastor, as a preacher about your own wrestling match in faith. You can't come across as this person who's just always blissfully certain. Um, if you do that people who are struggling and wrestling are going to leave because that isn't, that's just not their experience, you know? And secondly, we can't preach in ways where we exclude people who are wrestling and just assume that we're all, you know, that's, that's one of the things that the seeker sensitive movement for all of its maybe imperfections. That's one of the things it got right where it's like, don't assume that everybody you're preaching to here. Is this committed Christian who, you know, and so I think that's one thing we can do is to make our churches um, both in our, you know, our groups, our sermons, our everything, a place where people can be honest about their questions instead of having to be fake and um, sort of pretend that that they're all certain and, and happy and all that. Um, A second thing we've already mentioned, though, is I think there has to be a decoupling of kingdom and party when it comes to partisan politics. And that doesn't mean that you can't hold political opinions because you think that a particular platform or particular um, philosophy is better for people. I mean, you should hold opinions that you think are better for the community at large, and you should vote your conscience and all of that. But to the extent that the church is just seen as a wing of a particular partisan party, the church will continue to decline, I think. And people who see the imperfections in that particular party will feel like they're not welcome. Um, And so that's a in addition to making it a safe place for people to raise their questions and wrestle with doubt, I think there has to be a decoupling of the kingdom from kind of partisan um, politics. And that's true on both extremes. I, I realize that you know just because I'm in Oklahoma, that's not the only part of the country in yeah. evangelicalism is not the only branch of the church. So I, I would say that of all kind of branches and denominations within within the church.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I always want, you know, these conversations to I don't ever want to like target or demonize one group uh, because it's never just one. It's always we all have our our role in in, in improving and becoming yeah. better. Uh, and so that's where I think um, these That's why I think these conversations are so important. Uh, and so, you know, I get messages on Instagram uh, some, due to some of the posts that I post and the questions I ask them on, online through our Instagram, which is Rethinking Christianity. Um, I'd love to hear. So, so I get these messages sometimes of people that are just wrestling with doubt and they're like, you know, I'm trying to start new. I'm start, trying to uh, start fresh. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that this book could be helpful for you. I'd encourage you to go out and get it. Um, but I'd love to hear, you know, if you could give a last piece of just kind of a piece of advice to someone that maybe is kind of just trying to figure it out that maybe they've grown up in church or they they haven't or wherever they're at, just wrestling with those doubts. Um, if you could give them maybe a piece of advice or maybe a starting point
1: um, for them personally that might could be helpful for them. Yeah, one of the things we haven't talked about, but it's a, it's a big part of the book is, a lot of times these conversations about faith about doubt about deconstruction about apologetics they take place in a very cerebral rational space uh, our apologetics textbooks are very much like here's you know four arguments for god and here's answers to the problem of evil and it's a very sort of like cerebral rational yeah. um, conversation but one of the things i've found is that we tend to enlist our reason and our rationality to back up decisions that were made from our gut and from our experience and from trauma. And, you know, and so if we only dwell in this, in this realm of reason and rational arguments, and, and then we're really going to, we're missing an important piece of, of the puzzle. And so one of the things I'm trying to do in the book and it connects with this emphasis on the imagination is to, to get beyond these rational arguments. And one of the ways I do that is to enlist a lot of art and literature, fiction specifically, Uh um, because I think part of becoming a follower of Christ is what I would call uh, to use kind of like an academic term, the, the sanctification of our imagination, um, and so it's not just about pouring some more info into our cranium, you know, um, we're not just brains on sticks, uh, who need, you know, a different set of rational arguments. Um, our hearts and our imaginations need to be, if I could use this word, (laughs) they need to be infected with kind of the ethos of the gospel. And, um, I think that's so important because even when you begin to question your faith and you wrestle with things, if you have this kind of heart and imagination that's been um, just sort of taken over by the the story of the gospel and the heart of Jesus, then that can really carry you through a lot of rational questions. And so the importance of art and literature, um, I, I talk about how that is really formative for people like C.S. Lewis and, and deal with a lot of other um sort of fiction writers as well. Uh, I think that's important. It's something that's missing in a lot of these conversations about apologetics and faith and doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I would
0: definitely, that's that's a very valid point because for me, I'm a, and I kind of forget and it's easy to get caught up and forget like not everyone's like you. And so my, Mm -hmm. I'm fine with reading like just rationale and fiction or non-fiction and things like that and i've actually had to challenge myself of like maybe i need to read some other different thought to kind of you know kind of have that balance i've recently started reading the brothers karamazov and mm-hmm. that's been something that's like kind of different for me but it's really really good book uh and so i i think that that's a very valid point and something that um i think that also that the church i think could probably improve on is is creating spaces for those people that Um, need more of an imaginative kind of ways to practice their faith or wrestle through these, these conversations. Uh, And so Mm -hmm. I think that that's a a pretty valid, very valid point. I think that um, I remember looking and seeing you have like, there is some fiction in, in the book. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. One of the things I do, and it's, people might think this is really cool or they might think it's really weird, but in addition to these nonfiction chapters, which kind of lay out my, my argument or my exploration, throughout the book in between those chapters is a fictional narrative about a young lady named Eliza Johnson who uh, goes off to a Christian college and begins to lose her faith. And Mm -hmm. she's not a real person. Uh, It's not my college, anything like that. But it is in some ways a compilation of stories I've heard just a hundred times from young people, especially as they walk that path of beginning to question their faith, uh, feeling kind of disillusioned with a certain segment of the church. And and so that fictional narrative weaves through the book and uh, I, I won't give away the ending. It, it's, yeah. it's not a, it's not a sort of like um God is not dead. Everybody gets saved in the <laughs> end and they all, you know, smile at the camera freeze frame yeah. or something. But it is there is hope in the end as well and so that that weaves through the book and i hope some readers will find that to be kind of like um you know kind of like some leaven mixed in with the dough that uh makes it a little bit different kind of book than maybe than they're expecting
0: yeah that's awesome well cool josh i really appreciate you coming on and i uh i'm looking forward for readers to or listeners and readers to get a hold of your book Um, And I hope that that it can be helpful for people, because I know that's your hope for it. Uh, And I really appreciate your heart and for those people that are kind of just on the fringes and are working through uh, their faith, because I think there there needs to be more of this attitude of just being there to help people and walk with people and creating uh, spaces and environments for people to have conversation that allows for some middle ground. Uh, and I think it's really, really useful and, and really helpful. And so I'd encourage you you all to go check out. Perhaps uh, is September 21st is that the correct?
1: Yeah, I think that's the release date. Okay, cool. uh, September 21st. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me, Blake.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I'll have the uh, I'll have a link to your blog and our listen notes, and um, a link to the book. And I'm super looking forward for people to get a hold of it. So thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. I hope today's episode is helpful for you. And it is something that kind of challenges your thoughts and maybe gives you some new perspective, as it did for me as I was getting to talk with Josh. I was just thinking through a lot of the things that he was presenting, and I found it really, really helpful. If you could do me a big favor, like I mentioned earlier, if you could rate the podcast and review it or share it uh, or follow us on Instagram, all of those things would be really, really helpful in helping others find Rethinking Christianity and potentially give them something that could help them in their journey of faith. And uh, that is my hope with all the stuff that I put out that I can be a help and an aid to you and the guests and the voices that we have on here can be encouraging and challenging to you. And with all that being said, this is Blake. Thank you so much for tuning in and keeping up. And until next time, this is Rethinking Christianity.